This week on Hacker and the Fed, Zoom wanted to use your calls to train artificial intelligence. The NSA and DARPA are presenting challenges to the cybersecurity community. And we answered listener questions from a U.S. military chaplain about justice, a former black hat about a career in cybersecurity, and even a hacker who used a compromised email account to ask us how to stop hacking. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by Hector Monsiger, friend and podcast co-host, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced Hector to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how's it going this week? It's going. It's been a long week. What'd you do this week? Well, I came back from Vegas. Oh, we didn't tell anybody there. last episode. We didn't tell them where you were going, but you, you made it back safely. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. What were you doing out there? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it was mainly to meet up with uh, friends, a uh, ton of friends that I met out there. Um, some coworkers, some clients, some vendors. It was a mix of everything. But those new in cybersecurity, what what was happening this week in Vegas? Well, there, there's two things happening um, in Vegas, uh, or last week rather. It was Black Hat, which is a security conference, very solid. They have great content, great people running it. And then by the end of the week, you also had DEF CON starting. And um, so you had two big engagements of thousands and thousands of people there. It was very busy. It was very loud and very hot. Trust me when I tell you, very hot. Yeah, I haven't been in years. It's unfortunate they hold this thing in July every year, July, August, somewhere in that time. Sure, yeah. Man, Vegas is crazy hot that time of year. Oh, yeah. But not only that, it's hot and it's like super inconvenient. Because I've been been to Vegas many times over the last year to do all sorts of different events or meet up with clients. And my internet was fine. This time around, my cell phone service and reception was so terrible. You can imagine all the different stingrays and all the different technologies running and <laughs> intercepting people's phone lines and um, rather phone connections. And let me just say it was it was really wild in terms of the technology. So I felt like a caveman for about four days. Did you have a good time? Yeah, I had a solid time. You know, like I said, I met with some friends. I met some really great people that um, you know, I've known for years. Um, I met with some, a few of my coworkers that I've yet to meet physically, so it was a really good time for that. Oh. I met with some clients. The clients are always fun to meet with because most of my clients, like, they kind of have an idea as to who I am, and they, and they even listen to the podcast. So without mentioning names, I know you guys are listening. Big shout-out to you, and I had a, ah, I had a great time them. with you guys. Yeah. And, of course, you know, meeting with vendors. And, you know, I like meeting with vendors because, like, you get to have that one-on-one one-on-one personal conversation about security or their product or where they're headed um and yeah it was, it was a great experience i always forget how far along the flight is until coming back <laughs> man you leave like at nine o'clock in the morning and then you don't get into new york until like five o'clock the whole day is shot and uh it's exhausting coming back from vegas oh yeah no it, it's definitely logistical also a logistical nightmare for me because yeah i'm coming from new york it's only a five and a half six hour flight 
you know, I, I slept going over there. In fact, somebody that, uh, somebody that, you know, that I know found me on the phone, on the plane sleeping. He just didn't nice. want to wake me up. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I said, Hey, you found, <laughs> I said, did it feel like a national geographic where you just find like a sleeping bear in the middle of the woods? And <laughs> you know what I mean? Where's Hector? What are those type of things? You ever flown next to a celebrity? You ever had a celebrity on a plane? No, not me. Uh, or maybe you, I you have. Were, but you were the celebrity. I got you. I, I hear what you sound. You're telling the audience. No, 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 no. Not at all, man. No. But I, I, I tell you, though, it was it was cool. Now, coming back, you're right. I took a late flight back, 9 p.m. I got back to New York City at 7 in the morning. And I was cranky. I had anxiety. I was not in the mood. And then I get in a cab. And the cab's like, yeah, just open up your GPS. Uh, call it out for me. I'm like, bro. <laughs> I'm paying you and you still want me to call out like I'm a fucking backseat driver here and it's like ah okay you know what let's do it I just want to go home yeah 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 that's crazy I've never had a cabbie ask me to give him directions trust me bro it was it was just one of those situations in my life where I realized that I do appreciate the peace in my home <laughs> but how about how was your week how's everything with uh on your side with Naxo and everything business how's, how's all, all the beautiful things going on over there Good, good. We just moved into a new office, and so it's a, it's a beautiful office. It's over in Rockefeller Center, and uh, nice. overlooks the, the tree and the skating rink and all that. So, you know, beautiful. getting used to, you know, the, the new restaurants over there and different places to eat, but it, it was it is nice. The, the space is very nice, uh, and I like being there. I was I was picking up a buddy, though, this week in, uh, at the new train station. He was coming up from D.C., uh, mm. and I met him over, I think it's the, the Monahan, Monahan train station they just added on it's right next to if you're ever in new york they just added on to madison square so madison square has got a big uh, subway underneath and amtrak stations there underneath um the the venue liwr i think as well yeah yeah that goes over in there that's the long island railroad for people not in new york so new new big station is beautiful i mean it's an absolutely beautiful station you know like, like they used to have like grand central and all that beautiful mm-hmm. station. and we're standing there and me and my buddy tom are sitting there we're, we're waiting for another guy to show up tom there's another tom so and we walk by and I, I i thought i was in a cartoon i've never seen it i'm 45 years old and i've never seen this in my life a guy slipped on a banana peel <laughs> i had never Very seen nice. it in my whole entire life i thought it was just you know uh, something made up for the cartoons back when i was a kid sure. uh he was surprised uh the guy i was with was surprised <laughs> there was people walking around they're like is that a banana peel <laughs> that was the most exciting thing i happened all week i did not go to black head or defcon first of all who slips in a banana peel and, and secondly i'm sure he was he was completely just blown away by that well, yeah, it's first one of those, you know, in New York, if you don't want to stand out in any sort of way. So, like, you know, God forbid, yes. he's embarrassed that he almost fell down. But then Everybody's on top of it, him. yeah, then on top of it, you know, like, he's like, was that a banana peel? What the hell? What's, you know, and, but they just kept, <laughs> I, I, I never even saw his face, you know, he just kept, he's a true New Yorker and just forged on. He just forged on and left, left the evidence behind. Yeah. So I will say, I did get a new microphone this week. So if people, uh, People complain or it sounds different than uh, I have a new microphone with a new uh, like a boom stand. Um, so it's hands free. Uh, we'll see if no one likes it, uh, then write in and I won't use it. I'll use the old one. No, you sound fantastic. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, you sound great. And, um, you know, now that you're hands free, you can multitask. You know what I mean? You can do some typing away and all that good stuff. I sit here. And I'm, I'm like scratching my palm. I'm doing nothing with my hands free. <laughs> I, I spent money on this new boom and it's done nothing for me except freed my hands to, just to play with my other hand. There you go. So. This is sometimes the hands get lonely. You know yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's not go with that too much further with that. Sure. So, sure. So. <laughs> 
we got some, a few stories this week, uh, mostly user questions, because, man, we have been inundated with listener questions. So uh, so I try to include as many as I could, but, you know, sometimes we have to kind of cut it off. So if we didn't read your question this week, hopefully we'll get to it soon. So Zoom put out a new controversial privacy policy this week, and it's been all in the news. They changed their terms of conditions, and uh, they've sort of done an update on it. And so at the beginning of the week, they put out that users must consent to Zoom's, quote, access, use, collection, creation, modification, distribution, processing, sharing, maintenance, and storage of service-generated data for any purpose. And to explain that any purpose included the training and tuning of AI algorithms and models. So this basically Zoom telling people that they're going to use their stuff to train AI. Wow, look at that. Very brave of, the, of, of this company to kind of put that out there. I can imagine all the government agencies using private Zoom sessions for meetings, kind of, uh, you know, freaking out about that a bit. Yeah, so it seems like Zoom's now saying that we're collecting that your, your meetings, the meetings you've had and the, the data that you've put into these things, uh, we're collecting that, we're, you know, going through it. And we can use it for whatever we want. And one of those things is training the AI algorithm. And they're, they're explaining in a, in a post that the updates to the terms of service were done to improve user experiences. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, we did a story last week, Hector, where people were using the sounds of a keyboard generated from a Zoom meeting. So collecting the data that's tapped, tapped into the chat window and married it up with the sounds they heard in the background on the microphone to kind of sound, hear what your each keystroke sounded like. And they would be able to mm. use that to steal passwords. So kind of scary that those two stories come out at the same time, that Zoom says we can use anything we collect to train AI. And also there's an attack vector at the same time coming out. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one, right? Because even if they were to say, and I know they walk in the back, right? I mean, I think that's the update. Uh, yeah, I mean, so towards the end of the week, they walked it back. But I mean, again, like what, what we said at the beginning, you know, yeah. it was kind of scary. But they also, you know, they further went on and said, stated that users... Quote, by, by using Zoom, by clicking yes, I'm going to use Zoom, uh, hereby grant Zoom a perpetual worldwide non-exclusive royalty-free license to use and process customer content in any way, including the training of artificial intelligence models and algorithms. So it was written in there just as clear as that. Yeah. I mean, look, think about it like this, right? From the business perspective, it only makes sense for an organization like that to look at using incoming content, content they're processing to... Uh, develop some sort of AI model that they could leverage in some way in the future, maybe as a separate product or um, to enhance quality, whatever, right? We have no idea what they were thinking in the back end. Well, I mean, um, they could be just as much as even just selling that information. Or, yes, selling that information, okay? I mean, and how many companies sell? I mean, we talk about data brokers all the time mm -hmm. selling information. So, you know, who you're having meetings with, what things you're typing in, in the chat, what, what you know, conversations are being had that they, they we were giving them rights to sell that, the metadata mm -hmm. about our conversation. Well, I mean, so kind of going back to my point here, it's like it, it makes sense for them to investigate that potential, you know, that potential avenue to see if they can leverage it to enhance the current product or create a new product or do uh, or, or, or kind of um, identify a new um, revenue stream, whatever, right? But then you have to also look at the context here. It's important to note that a lot of people use Zoom for all sorts of different meetings. It's not a party line. We're not, you know, we're not calling each other to, to make jokes and, and have fun, right? There's a lot of conversations that are happening on Zoom that are private and probably should stay private. And companies and agencies actually pay a subscription to be able to use Zoom for that. 
So imagine, you know, one surprise. Uh, my surprise is I'm a payer of Zoom for my business. Um, that you know now they're talking about. Yeah, we may take these recordings. We may take the content and, and use it for something else. And you're giving us you know, royalty free access. No, 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 no. That's 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 not that's not cool. So I'm very happy that like uh, the people on Twitter and and other social networks um, started you know kind of pushing back against those changes. And a big shout out to the people that actually found and highlighted and put emphasis on these specific changes. Because uh, trust me, reading the terms and conditions is extremely boring. Um, and I just want to give kudos to folks that found this stuff. I just, I just don't understand how it's not a wiretap. I mean, if AT&T came out and said, hey, we're going to all, record all the phone calls you had on your phone or, or Verizon yeah. did it, people would shit a brick. I mean, how is oh, it yeah. any different than, than just them saying, hey, yeah, we're going we're gonna to record everything you say and we're going to keep it. It's ours uh, just because you use our platform. And you also bring up another good point. Is there a difference between the pay version and the free version that you get if you want to just use like that 40 minute, you know, cutoff version? Well, and I'll tell you, it, it highlights Zoom alternatives because there are Zoom alternatives out there like Jitsi and, and others, um, some of which are peer to peer voice conferencing or camera conferencing, video conferencing uh, uh, platforms. You know, and now now I have to take this seriously and start to reconsider whether or not I need to go with one of those peer to peer or, or uh, on prem platforms that I have to set up myself and then send invites to clients and so on. But that, that's a whole other cluster, right? Now we have to make it convenient enough to folks who want to be able to use this other platform. When they're used to Teams or they're used to, you know, Google Meets or even Zoom, right? It's it's a tough one. And I'm sure the audience here are probably sitting there scratching their heads if they haven't heard the story yet. Because you, like, you were right, Chris. This was like all over the news like last week and this week. For those of you that I either have an opinion or have not heard the story and just listening to it or listening about it now, but I would love to hear your insights because this is this is one that's really odd. Um, and I think it was a bad business decision, Chris, to to even go this route or try to go this route. Well, because of the outrage, they did walk it back. They did yeah. say that they're not going to do this. The, the following, they say, following feedback, Zoom made the decision to update its term of service to reflect Zoom does not use any of your audio, video, chat, screen sharing attachments or other communication like customer content to train Zoom or third-party artificial intelligence models. So I think that yeah. right there, that ending sentence, third-party artificial intelligence models kind of proves my point that they mm. are they were planning on selling this data to be used uh, for somebody else, which is a great revenue stream for them. I'm um, sure, yeah. But, you know, and again, are people really surprised? I mean, if they think about it, like you, you get free Gmail. You get, what, what 5, yeah. 10, gigabytes 20 gigabytes i don't even know what gmail is mm -hmm. up to yeah. do you think google is not indexing uh, by indexing i mean going through every single word and, and keeping track in your emails of what's going on and keeping a profile on you i mean it's a free service um, yeah i mean i'm pretty sure that you know those services do that for that, that exact purpose i mean look at G well how else G do they make money besides taking that information and selling it or using it to target information at you or targeting as directly at you. Of course, a free service, anything free that you get for free, Facebook, any of these, your information is the payment. Not surprising, but again, you know, I pay for Zoom. My company pays for Zoom. I, you know, I would hope that they didn't use our, what we're saying to sell and then be, you know, held against us. So who knows? You imagine if uh, you said something risque on a Zoom and you lost your job or something because because of it because they sold that information to a third party and then it got out. Yeah, and what's the next course of action for you? Just accept it and deal with it. Can you sue you know the vendor at that point? 
do you have the money to sue the vendor at that point? Um, you agree to the terms of service. Yeah, well, that's what, it goes back to that famous South Park episode. You remember that one? Yeah. Uh, where, you know, I forgot which of the characters accepted the terms of service without thinking about it. I think it was Kyle. And they put him into the human centipede experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so Ugh, Gross. Yeah. All right, Hector, next story. Uh, Microsoft okay. exposes Russian hackers sneaking phishing tactics into Microsoft Teams chats. So there Ooh. was a highly targeted social engineering attacks where a Russian state threat actor um, used credential theft phishing lures sent out as Microsoft Teams chats. Um, so this threat actor has previously compromised uh, Microsoft 360 owners by small businesses to create new domains that appear to be a technical service entity. So uh, they would get into, you know, people's three uh, teams accounts, uh, small business, and then pretend to be uh, help and then get that lure people into uh, their username and password and also grab their MFA um, or authenticate their, the bad guy's device to their uh, teams account. So Kind of a crazy story. They've, this has been observed since uh, at least May of 2023, but Microsoft is saying it's affected less than 40 organizations, which include globally spanning government, non-government organizations, IT services, technology, discrete manufacturing, and media sectors. So, uh, sounds kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, look, social engineering works, and it's going to continue to work. And as you start to, you know, provide people with more technology and more platforms. You know, that you, you further expand the attack surface. You know, when you give users the capability to interact with each other, you're expanding it even further, right? Um, the further it grows, the more potential there is for exploitation. And listen, we talk about it all the time how social engineering is very successful, and it usually falls down to uh, or points right back at the human element um, and how people want to help others. and. You know, or if they have trust for someone, they'll immediately click on something. Um, or if if there's a there's a power struggle with an organization, or there's a hierarchy. If their CEO sends them a link, they're more likely going to click and, and submit. That's that's just the reality of it, right? And so I'm not surprised by this. I mean, you go back 20 years or 15 years, the same concept you saw on Skype when people were using Skype for business. You remember that? And you had the same sort of attacks. Now the difference is it's a different platform, Microsoft Team Chats. Nothing, nothing changes. It's uh, you think people will learn after a while to to be a little bit more cautious or, you know, pessimistic about a link they get. Um, you know, the, the ones that get me is the uh, where they're they're constantly bombarding you with uh, two factor requests, and finally people just say grant access. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, if you're not trying team. to get in your account, never grant access. Yeah, but you know. Uh, I was having a conversation with this a few days ago with clients out there in Vegas, and they brought up this one specific client. I know you're listening. Big shout out to you. Uh, but he brought up MFA fatigue as an issue. Um, and I said, well, there are ways around that, right? I mean, you know, if you have Okta or Duo or any of those service providers, uh, you can uh, fine tune your uh, configuration so that if the prompt is denied three times or Maybe there's one prompt before the account is locked. Whatever. There's so much you could do to help limit the exposure to a fatigue attack. But the reality is, Chris, I'm sure it's happened to me. I'm sure that, you know, you get an alert, you open your phone, and, you know, your finger swipes on the wrong button. I've done it. And all of a sudden, you're accepting something. Now, has it happened to me, that, uh, you know, with an attack or no? But in my head, I'm like, wow, what if that was an attack? I just pressed OK without really meaning to 
you know, I just swapped apps on my phone and, you know, my finger went straight to the accept button, right? Are you talking about you swiped the wrong direction on Tinder or something? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Always the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can't remember if I've ever done it, but I've definitely, like, it, I, it, when it first started happening, you know, the back in the day, it sure. really confused me on why I was getting these requests. So we can't move on from the story until you go through the attackers' names, man. Oh, oh yeah, you <laughs> saw that part. I saw that part. Oh, yeah. So please, this, please bless the audience with the names. This one really, you know, we talk about this week after week over these crazy ass names. Um, you know, I, I I got a little fatigue with it of this week of uh, as seen on X, formerly known as Twitter. Like, mm. how many times do I have to read X is formerly known as Twitter? I get it. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, well, sorry, Elon. Yes. I know Elon listens to the show. I I, I love the X. So he just ordered some merch the other day. I sent him out uh, I, some shirts. So I'll yeah, that's, that's very nice. Uh, yeah. I wonder if, if Zuck is gonna do the same. I doubt it. <laughs> well, if we could get if we could get Elon to wear a, a hacker in the Fed shirt at the fight, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, yeah, but hopefully, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, he does something with it. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but yes. So. In the article, um, this they, they write this line: uh, "This attack was attributed the attacks to a group it tracks as Midnight Blue, previously Nobellum. It's also called APT29, mm. Blue Bravo, Cozy Bear, Iron Hemlock, and the Dukes." Wow, the Dukes! I wonder who came up with that fucking treasure. <laughs> One effing group with nineteen <laughs> different names, or whatever they're gonna call. Man, this is why people get so confused and fed up with cybersecurity. It's yeah, too it's confusing. Getting, it's getting ridiculous. It, it really is. Imagine a scenario where a, a brand new vulnerability comes out. Let's say, I don't know, Iron Hemlock, whatever. Oh, 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 oh sorry. That's the name of that's the name of the group right here. Yeah. Uh, You're thinking of Dragon's Hemorrhoid. Yeah, Dragon's Hemorrhoid. It's a new vulnerability class. Uh, where you could do like uh, a race condition against a CPU, one thing or another, whatever. And then, you know, it has a CVE associated to it. And a CVE is an identifier for vulnerabilities, ladies and gents. And then there's like 19, well, depending on the security company that writes up the vulnerability or discusses the vulnerability, they come up with a whole brand spanking new CVE for it. it it'll, it'll be so ridiculous and so confusing, like the way it is now with these bizarre names, Midnight Blizzard. I mean, I'm not going to front. Midnight Blizzard sounds pretty cool. For like a for like a shitty you know like you know small town band, but yeah, not for not for an APT group. Yeah, I know it sounds like a ride to Disney World to me. I don't know, <laughs> for real. So, but yeah, no people tell me all the time, you know, like oh, sometimes you guys get really nerd out and you can confuse us. I mean, Hector and I are deep in cybersecurity world and we get confused. I mean, this one group really has like one, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven names, seven At names in one group. Mm-hmm. The Dukes. Oh, those Dukes. The Dukes. Who comes up with this? I don't know. They Maybe they drove around in a big orange car with a uh, <laughs> Confederate flag on the roof. All right, next story. Hackers to compete for nearly $20 million in prizes by using AI for cybersecurity, Biden administration announces. So the AI Cyber Challenge was announced this week uh, out at Black Hat, uh, offering nearly $20 million in prizes. It's a collaboration from the leading AI companies, includes Google and Microsoft and OpenAI. Um, they're going to make their technology available for the competition. And I, like I said, it was announced at Black Hat, and the qualifying event will be held this spring, where up to 20 top scoring teams will be chosen in advance 
to uh, to advance to the semifinal competition at DefCon. 2024 and so like hector was saying in the beginning defcon is black hat is like a the the business side of cybersecurity. defcon is like the hacker side of the the, the week of uh, out in vegas so next year they're going to have 20 teams and so from those 20 teams and defcon 2024 um up to five of those teams will win two million dollars each and advance to defcon 2025 for the for the final team so it's a two-year event for this hacking uh did you read about this sector yeah, yeah, I read about it. It's interesting oh, well, you were stuff. there probably when it was announced. Um, well, I was probably just hanging around with a bunch of folks, but um, no, I, I, I heard about it. I heard a lot of conversation about it. Um, folks were definitely curious and, and interested as to what it really entails, right? Are we talking about are you going to use AI or or some sort of sort of language model to identify um, attack paths, right? Or are you going to use AI or similar to identify uh, ways to improve endpoint security? I don't think they're limiting it. So they say the top prize is $4 million to the team that, quote, best secures a vital software. So, you know, I guess using AI in some sort of way, some new way, they, they need to make it open source so their systems can be used, their solution can be used widely. Um, and it's being sort of uh, serving an advisor as the... Uh, the Linux Foundation Open Source Security Foundation, but also DARPA or the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. That's a sort of like the secret military uh, nerd wing of uh, the United States military. Uh, they're running the competition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very cool. We have a lot of cool people involved here. I'm very excited by this. Big shout out to anybody anybody that was actually involved in in, in creating this and pushing it forward. And a big kudos to them for, you know, uh, just working with DEF CON on this, the DEF CON organization and, and their hierarchy to kind of get to kind of get people involved in this. Like a big shout out to them. Yeah, no, this is this is very cool. I'm actually looking at the the rules for the competition. So get this right. So let's say if you are a team, you are, uh, uh, you know, you have a good understanding of security. Um, you also have um, some experience in AI or you want to kind of jump into AI. Um, so in terms of qualifying you have to register one application per team and you could be a team of one by the way so you don't have to join up with other folks if you don't want to um, the event's kickoff is february 2024 and you also have to provide some sort of technical paper so to compete in the aqc applicants must submit a technical paper that outlines the team's technical approach in the february february 2024 kickoff the paper should include a discussion of the methodology and tools employed and expected results or the expected results and plan future directions after the AQC. And this requirement aims to ensure that the participants have a coherent and well-defined plan for their project and that they can convoy or convey their ideas effectively. Very cool, right? So it's not like a rinky-dink operation. We all sign up and we start doing some random stuff. Uh, they're looking for legitimate uh, projects or folks that really want to you know, kind of move forward um, with with bringing AI to security. Yeah, no, I mean, DARPA, like I said, DARPA's involved in that. They're, you know, big time, um, you know, tech end. Uh, they said they'd give up a million dollars to seven small businesses that wanted to sure. participate. 
and you know there's there's this definitions around the small businesses here in the United States, but this isn't the first time DARPA has been part of this uh, or done something like this. Back in 2014, they did the Cyber Grand Challenge, which uh, developed open source uh, automatic defense system for computers. Mm, uh, so yeah, th- 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 that worked out very well, and so I guess I don't know why they waited uh, what nine years, but uh, you know they're doing it again. So it's it's exciting to see what happens. Yeah, the political landscape has been crazy the last 90 years, I'm sure. True. <laughs> uh, but I want to give some more context for the audience here, because this does not only apply to cybersecurity folks. If you are a hardcore developer and you have some understanding of, of you know various algorithms that you could apply to something like this, you have at least a basic understanding of how, of how AI works and how to develop uh, data sets and algorithms and eventually your own language model. So in terms of the AQC format, here's some of the challenges, right? Competitors will receive an identical corpus of challenges and challenge projects or CPs modeled on real-world open-source projects. The CPs will contain vulnerabilities that must be identified and secured or remediated. The goal of the AQC, or a, yeah, AQC is to create a fully autonomous cyber reasoning system, or CRS, to find and correctly fix vulnerabilities within the CPs without human assistance. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Because I was curious as to what this actually meant. But it seems like the government wants to put an investment or make an investment into what they call the cyber reasoning system. And I'm assuming, and this is me being a nerd, Chris, if you don't, give, if, if you don't mind, just bear with me for a minute, okay? The tool that you are to develop must be able to identify vulnerabilities in source code that are open source that they will provide to you. Part of that will probably be static analysis, okay? You will probably also have to do some sort of dynamic analysis or maybe code path analysis where you have to identify um, if you modify this parameter up here and in line 200, that parameter is is, is set to null. Um, and then, you know, 300 lines down, it does something else that leads to some sort of vulnerability. Um, then what they're expecting from you is to identify that and then remediate it without a human making any changes to the code. Interesting stuff, guys. I think this is interesting because now we go into essentially identifying the vulnerabilities, right, which are all the different topics I've mentioned so far, but also now you have to do some sort of risk assessment, right, or risk analysis. And you have to figure out whether or not an attack path has a high enough risk for you to, to, for you to remediate. Um, and I'm sure that they're probably going to throw some bogus issues in there as well to kind of trick you. So if any of you do join, let us know. We, I would love to track your progress. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's cool that they're making it open source and that the solution, you know, people can use the solution at the end of this to, to, you know, to check their own stuff. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Right. It's, a, it's a great idea. Uh, I'm glad DARPA <laughs> was able to put $20 million out there for it. That's right. Fantastic. I love you know, it. It's great for the people getting into it to, to get access to, you know, uh, Google and Microsoft's and OpenAI's, uh, you know, their, uh, their, the different um, technologies available. So even just to play around with it and understand it and learn it more. Hector and I are extremely happy to partner with DeleteMe. Not only is DeleteMe a great company to work with, their product is easy to use and provides a great service for those of us who are serious about our cybersecurity. DeleteMe can be found at the domain joindeleteme.com. 
again, guys, there's cyber squatters out there that are trying to uh, glom on to Delete Me's great product and trick you guys into going to different domains. But Delete Me is at the domain joindeleteme.com. Hector used Delete Me long before starting the podcast because of Delete Me's proven track record for removing our private information from over 750 data brokers. Hector's praise of Delete Me has convinced me to start using the services too. We talk about personally identifiable information, or PII, being stolen on the show all the time. Every week there's a new breach we discuss with millions of records being exposed. Data brokers are out there collecting your stolen information 24-7. Cyber criminals are using your personally identifiable information for things like opening lines of credit, making purchases on your credit cards, and even stealing your tax refund. Delete Me is working hard to remove your PII from these data brokers. Delete Me removes private information from hundreds of data brokers. Delete Me has over 100 million successful opt-out removals completed by their privacy advisors. The service is easy to use. Your welcome email will get you started by submitting your information. Then Delete Me's experts will find and remove your personal information. The removal process starts and you will receive a detailed Delete Me report in seven days. Then Delete Me scans and deletes your information all year long. Delete Me's mission is simple, to remove customers' information from search results. As you all know, and we talk about every week, this is an important step to securing your online world. Through our partnership with Delete Me, Hacker and the Fed listeners get 20% off all consumer plans with the code FED20. That's F-E-D-2-0. So go to joindeleteme.com slash FED, F-E-D, and use code FED20 for 20% off. This is a great service and it really helps support our show. Again, go to joindeleteme.com slash FED, F-E-D, and use code FED20, F-E-D-2-0 for 20% off all consumer plans. Also, as out of Black Hat this week, the NSA, or the national, the United States National Security Agency, just to make sure no one's confused. Or no such agency. Come on, Chris. That, well, that article, the article here says that, <laughs> that no longer do people call it the no such agency. Um, it's it's a kind of changing in, this, in the hacker world. But uh, oh, yeah. they're putting out a code breaker challenge to help drive cybersecurity education because uh, the NSA has a goal of hiring 3,000 cybersecurity professionals this year. Interesting. Um, so shout out. We had Alan that reached out to us, the listener, and mentioned that he just got a job with NSA. So that was great. Had a lot of listeners write in and congratulate Alan on getting that job. So uh, Alan, uh, let you know, um, Hacker in the Fed listeners are supporting you and love to hear more about as you make it through. I know you can't probably can't talk about your job, but anything you can share with them uh, is very motivational. So um, appreciate you sharing what you have. Well, he's probably reading my email right now, so I hope uh, he, <laughs> he has some good takeaways. He's Appreciate probably you, listening Alan. to this conversation as we have it. Ah, yes, prior to prior to the uh, you know the release, I guess. logged right into <laughs> Zoom and whatever. How we're not even using Zoom, and he's probably listening to it through Zoom. Yeah, right? yeah. So. <laughs> so, anyways, the Code Breaker Challenge is an event designed to provide participants with realistic challenges, and these challenges include dealing with ransomware, reverse engineering a rogue mobile application and tracking surveillance uh, footage. Um, so the scenario for this year, the Code Breaker Challenge will center around a, 
uh, simulation in which the U.S. Coast Guard identifies a signal about 30 miles off the coast of the continental U.S., and participants will be asked to intercept and find the origin of the signal. The event's going to la- launch on September 28th and end on December 21st. So I think in the past sector, these these challenges were kind of focused on um, the universities, people in computer science uh, departments at universities. I think they've kind of brought that down, and they really want more high school involvement. So kids in the high school years, um, which is uh, brings up a good point. I was having a conversation with uh, 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 some people this week, um, uh, actually a local political um, representative uh, I was having dinner with, uh, and was telling me a story about how he knows a guy whose kid just wasn't college material, just wasn't looking to go you know, to college, but went out sure. and started collecting certifications uh, and now is being offered a number of jobs in the cybersecurity world. Interesting. Okay. So okay. It's saying, it seems like this challenge that the NSA is putting out is kind of focusing on those kids also, the ones that maybe college isn't for them and maybe doesn't need to go, you know, to college and to get the, the skill sets needed and the basis in cybersecurity. So it's an interesting sort of twist of what's going on these days, like a little pushback on, on college. Yeah. Well, the one thing I'll say is that I am also, you and I talk about this all the time, offline, online, um, how we feel it's important to start introducing cybersecurity earlier to our next generation, um, getting them involved and helping them build careers. You know, when you look at things that happened, like what happened two weeks ago here in New York, where you had a bunch of young kids running around, you know, going crazy for PS5s. I mean, I, I look at that pool of people. I'm like, okay, these are young folks that probably need some direction. What if they had cybersecurity there in their schools? What if they had some sort of guidance, some sort of mentorship? Um, you know, let's 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 put them in a situation where they don't have to run around like a bunch of crazies trying to get a free PS5. They could just go forward to buy their own PS5 with their, you know, once they get they start working in the industry, right? There's there's a lot of potential that we have that we're not really taking advantage of. I know it costs money, and I know it costs time, but I'm I'm, I'm hoping that programs like these. Big shout out to the NSA for this. Uh, big programs like these, you know, really start to gain more traction and get more attention. So, yeah, no, I'm with it. Yeah, that's why I wanted to include them in the show. Um, you know, guys, links are for both the, the NSA Codebreaker Challenge and also, you know, the AI Cyber Challenge that DARPA's putting on will be in the description. If you guys, you know, I think there are two different levels here, but if, if you guys have the skill set and desire, I definitely think you should look further into these and see what you can do on them because they're, they're great opportunities. Yes, sir. So, Hector, I, I felt a little old on this next one. Um, <laughs> the headline was uh, Little Tay uh, Meta helped to get uh, account back from Hacker. Uh, it kind of drew my eye. So this is a TMZ story, not normally a source where we get uh, hacker news and hacker information. <laughs> um, but I had to look up uh, who Little Tay was. I wasn't. Yeah, really, not really kind of my thing. She was a um, meme for a while, for sure. Yeah, I think I saw her as a meme. And at dinner tonight, I mentioned to my I, my son. He's eighteen. I said, uh, "Yeah, I think we're doing a story tonight about Little Tay." She's. I had to look her up, and she's a teen rapper. Um, and he says she's not really a rapper. She's more of a a, a disser. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, she 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 disses folks and all that stuff, you know. Oh well, now now you sound old like me, so sorry. Nah, well, I feel old now. Old yeah, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to give you some street cred there, and I really called you out on it. Nah, you really exposed me right there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Phineas, cut all of this out, all of it. Yes. Make it gone, please. So no, but uh, so I guess apparently Little Tay, who's maybe a disser or something, she's she's young and she's uh, what uh, 
somehow her Instagram was compromised by someone uh, that falsely claimed that she was dead. Wow. So, uh, you know, but then uh, Meta uh, tells us that they helped to get her account back. But then a spokesperson for Meta also says that little Tay is being truthful about not being able to access her, her Instagram account. Um, mm, so what, yeah, what I found interesting about this is one that in like nine different places, and this just could be an author, um, you know, obviously TMZ doesn't write cybersecurity news, but they, they say, they keep saying that meta helped get her account back. Yeah. It's kind of more than help. They just kind of changed the password and gave her the new password. <laughs> um, sort of kind yeah. of, you know, they have full control on their account. The other thing is that, yeah. that, that now this social media tech company is now confirming uh, that it had been hacked uh, and that she was telling the truth. So a little, yeah. little extra there. So not much to go on there, Hector, and talk about, but, you know, remind people that cybersecurity is important because uh, if you don't keep your your, your social media secure, uh, people are going to pronounce you dead. Yeah, I mean, we, we could go even further, right? I mean, even back then when Twitter, um, I mean, I'm sure you guys remember when the Twitter support accounts were compromised and you had attackers posting fake stories here and there. Or even another incident back in the days, in the early years of Twitter, you know, there was a vulnerability in the service. And I think some Iranian cyber group broke in and, and they were posting like fake art, fake tweets or whatever, uh, or tweets with like, uh, you know, misinformation. Yeah, I mean, these accounts are very important, especially if you have a lot of followers. Um, and they could theoretically, you know, sway the market. You know, there's been tweets and stuff like that where uh, announcements of people have, that, you know, people have died or, a company's going bankrupt, and it's cost billions of dollars in damages. And as for little Tay, you know, I, you know, I wish this, this young lady a ton of success, and I hope the best for her. But it's also a security highlight for her that she needs to kind of focus on, um, you know, maintaining her accounts and make, making sure that she's not authorizing her accounts with with third party services, um, and she needs to, you know, have a strong password security uh, posture there. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it is an interesting story nonetheless. I did see like. You know the timeline in my timeline on Twitter or even elsewhere, saying, "Hey, little Tay has died," but there was no information, and it spread like wildfire. I remember back in the day, I saw a guy. He once posted that a dead guy was alive. No, no way. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, there was uh, it was on PBS. It got posted that Tupac Shakur was alive and living well in uh, New Zealand. Well, I tell you, I wish that was the truth. To be honest with you, I, I do too. Yeah. So. But, that would have been nice, yeah, but, but no, it's 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 very important to f- for folks to know that yeah, social media is definitely an attack vector. But if we look at it at, at you know at a much bigger, you know, if we look at it from a from a, the perspective of can this actually affect us? Yes, absolutely. Um, so anybody that's handling social media for your businesses, you want to make sure you're following a strict methodology for securing those accounts because all you need is one bad incident to lead to one bad tweet that's going to destroy your business. You don't want that. So one last story, Hector, and it's not really again. This one's not another one we're not going to dive deep on. But, uh, you know, I'd like to announce these when we see these. But Cisco's launching a free 120-hour ethical hacker training course. So it's a junior cybersecurity analyst. You know, big shout-out to Cisco for doing this. They're kind of joining everybody else. Um, You know, these free classes, guys, soak them up. Take them and learn. You know, it's free. It's just going to take your time. You know, it's, 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 it's great to have this information. So... Cisco says that this prepares participants for the Cisco Certified Support Technician or the CCST Certification of Cybersecurity. It's 120 hours. It's tailored especially for beginners um, and it aligns with entry-level cybersecurity roles such as a cert- cybersecurity analyst, cybersecurity technician, and level one help desk support. 
Um, it focuses on threat intelligence, network security, risk management. It's uh, available in various languages, including Spanish. But I'm very glad to hear that Cisco is, you know, releasing these courses for free. But all these guys, all, all the all the big companies seem to be putting it out there, and I think it's great. That's why I want to, you know, there's a link uh, right to how to find this guys. Take it, you know. I, I would love to. Uh, I'd love to force my son to take it. I don't know if he would, uh, you know, but I, I'd love him to to start doing some of these classes. Absolutely, and and I know I've mentioned this before, but for for some of you that, and it all depends on your state. So if you're in the United States, if you are currently on unemployment, let's say you lost your job recently, and you're on unemployment, you should definitely go to the unemployment website because a lot of states have partnered up with like Coursera or other training platforms. And those platforms are usually, you know, you have to pay a membership fee or a subscription fee. Um, but due to the relationship, at least here in New York that I saw, um, they've partnered up with Coursera. So you can log in, sign up, and start doing training courses for free without having to pay for it. But yeah, man, this is this is great news. And, and definitely keep up on your hunt for knowledge. I mean, that's yeah. something I do every day and I recommend it for anyone, especially those that want to get into the industry. I take Sundays off. No new knowledge on Sundays. There you go. That works. So, Hector, let's jump into listener questions. If you've got a question for us, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. A lot of great questions this week. A lot of good audience feedback. Guys, you, you guys are doing great. I know not every listener will write into a podcast, but the, the, the amount of listeners that we have in interaction is fantastic. So a lot of emails came in. Again, congratulating Alan for his job with the NSA. Um, so Alan, listener of Hacker in the Fed, got a, recently he's got a job with the NSA, asked us for some advice. And got the job. I don't know if they're two are connected, but, you know, hey, maybe. So, Marius from Lithuania. A lot of internationals today. This, um, Love it. These hackers. So, first of all, I wanted to thank you for the great podcast. I think that's for you. Uh, you are brilliant. I think that's for me. I work for a large organization, and there are loads of global teams within different regions. For example, a network team in one EU country an identify, identity and access management team based in Asia, and a cybersecurity team based in the U.S. When I joined this organization, I was pretty surprised at how things are, are slow moving and how nobody takes responsibility. Perhaps it depends on the sector in which we are operating, but previously I had worked for a government organization where I thought that everything was slow. Also, it affects the whole process and culture. Sometimes it looks like nobody cares about security and the processes or nobody takes responsibility. It is hard to work with people from different teams as they have different responsibility levels compared to my team. How can company culture affect cybersecurity and do hackers target companies that the culture is toxic? So if you don't mind, Chris, I'll just jump right into this. Do it. Right? Yeah. So how can company culture affect cybersecurity? Yeah, so let's let's look at your scenario that you that you kind of just put out there for us, right? You have a large multinational organization with teams, um, seems seemingly segmented into different regions. The fact that you have security out of the U.S. and you have you know identity management or access management or both in Asia can be problematic. You know, maybe you didn't provide us enough context, but if you were to look at it the way you wrote it out, there seems to be some problems there that I could visualize, right? Um, if there is a security incident that happens on the Asian system, for example, and you have uh, U.S. security teams analyzing it off hours for those Asian uh, workers, uh, there is going to be a time zone issue. There's going to be conflicts of interest also when you have uh, team members that don't want to take accountability. 
I can only imagine what of a nightmare scenario that could also uh, be for like a CIO, a chief of information officer, uh, or a CISO that uh, that's a, maybe considered a global CISO um, to kind of overlook all of this, right? So you really have to depends on those that have been delegated responsibilities, and if those that have that have been delegated responsibilities do not take accountability for faults, then you're going to find yourself or yourselves in a very um, tight bind, especially when there's an ongoing engagement going on. Now, of course, you can't provide us too many details. I understand that. But I can see how the way things are segmented within your organization can be problematic. And I will leave it at that. Okay. Um, as for your next question, do hackers target companies where the culture is toxic? You know, I never thought about I, I never thought about it this way. But now that I think about it, if I were a bad actor and I was trying to compromise in a, a company, let's say a mid-sized and large company, I would look for co- uh, employee reviews. You know, if I see the co- uh, employee reviews are complaining about certain management issues or specific management personnel, which we've seen all over the place, uh, you know, that I've seen before in, in, in reviews, yeah, why not? I mean, I, I would think that that would open up the doors for potential social engineering, especially if you're seeing reviews about a company where it seems like management is very strict and management is expecting a certain response at a certain time and it's a high-stress environment, yeah, that would be a great phishing target. You would focus on employees that are probably lower tier or um, lower in the totem pole, maybe underpaid, and you would just replicate what their managers may speak like or may approach them like uh, over email or SMS. Uh, I'm pretty sure you have some good successes there. I thought I thought this was a softball for you, Hector. I thought this one was going to be easy. You're knocking it out of the park. Do hackers yeah. target companies where the culture is toxic? The insider threat. This is oh, the year well that, of the insider threat. A company yes. that has a toxic culture is going to have pissed off people inside the company, and that's yeah. when they're going to start doing the worst damage. Is the people that we give access to our uh, our companies. So now we're going beyond social engineering. If you're a bad actor and you're like, well, there's a company nearby that has 100,000 employees and the reviews are terrible, more than likely the security process are terrible as well. So let me join up. Let me uh, infect some network uh, uh, file shares and see where it goes. Boom. Interesting stuff. Yeah. I definitely, you know, I think it's just like, you know, some of the stuff we saw in LulzSec days. You know, people that are pissed off at their companies, they're going to give hackers access. That is screw right. The, screw this company. I, we don't. Mm-hmm. I don't care about it. This cult, toxic culture. Those are very good points. So yes, uh, Marius, we do think hackers will target companies with a toxic culture. So that needs to be changed. Next question is from Susan. Hi, Hector and Chris. And I'm going to read it just the way Susan wrote it. Y'all talk a lot about vulnerability, vulnerable routers. How old is too old? And when should I stop patching and updating my router and just get a new one? Well, I, I like I like the the y'all that you threw yeah, in there. That was very good. Southern. Yeah, no, that's very southern. I, lo- I love that draw. Um, yeah, so I I think it's a great question because I myself have used old products, and I, I didn't replace them. I updated them as much as I could. And to be honest with you, Susan, so long as the vendor is providing you security updates and firmware updates and so on, you're in a good place. Even if the, the you know if the product itself is ten years old. If you're using a 10-year-old product and they're still updating it with software, I think you're in a decent spot. Once you reach a point where the product that you own has reached end of life, as in the vendor no longer supports the device, the vendor no longer updates the device, and they no longer provide you with updating instructions or even documentation on how to deal with that device, 
that's probably too old. That's just my opinion. What about you, Chris? No, I agree. Yeah, d- definitely end of life, and that's the rule of thumb. End of life devices, if they're no longer being patched and updated, you got to get rid of them. But, uh, you know, so the thing with routers is, you know, they're coming up with new speeds and faster speeds and, and combining channels to work together for faster speeds. I think if you're you may, maybe one speed from the current, you're probably going to want to upgrade. That's a, probably a good way to see it. If, you, if you're trying to if things are slowing down and you want faster Wi-Fi speed, you know, your, your router is your limiting factor. You're paying for, you know two gigabit or gigabit in your house and your router is the limiting factor you should probably upgrade you know you're gonna have new security is gonna come with that sure so i agree with that 100 percent. yeah don't, don't let it be now let me ask you factor difference if it's downstream like let's say i have a, a the the internet comes into my house and it goes into my router and then i have another router down below that for for different networks you know maybe i want to put my kids on that one um, same security risks if it's behind a fully updated router to run a little bit older router or, uh, or are you a little bit safer? Yeah, well, I, I, would, I would be more concerned with the router that's on the edge, right? The attackers are more than likely going to face that. And if they get beyond that and it's a fully patched device and they use some sort of zero day, then at that point it doesn't really matter, right? So I would focus more on the edge. And then if you have other segmented devices internally, you uh, obviously want to pass those at some point, but the priority should be that edge device. Yeah, I agree. So if you do have an older router, you maybe put them behind a more secure router. Uh, but again, end of life. The, 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 the fast rule, end of life, no longer should be on your network. Susan's got a second question. She wants us to settle a disagreement. Some family members say it's best to log out and close tabs before getting off the computer. Others say shutting down the computer takes care of that. Uh, and it's easy to reopen a browser with tabs already open. Do you have an opinion on this one? Or can you settle this, or are you not getting involved? It's very close to being a trick question. Because let's say you have 10 tabs open. One is Gmail, one is Twitter, and then the other eight are other services that you use. If you have a browser, and you're caching content on those in that browser, and it's not a secure browser, like let's say Tor browser, right? And you're not using incognito mode, okay. So it's like an everyday browser using it normally. You log into 10 different accounts and then you close your laptop. Uh, you turn the computer back on, you log back in, all, you, all your tabs are still there. Everything is still logged in. Um, it's going to be the same as if you take the laptop. And mind you, this is assuming that this is just a single person use device, right? And I'll get to one the account. like more, one main account yeah, on the computer. One person using the laptop. Okay. So, okay, cool. You, you you go with the opposite direction, right? You you Before you log off, you close your tabs, um, you close your browser, you close your lid, you go to sleep, you wake up, and you have to kind of open everything all over again. Honestly, it's the same shit. Part of my language, Susan. Um, because depending on the service, um, the moment you log in, you authenticate, it creates a cookie on your computer. Inside that cookie is a session token. That session token might have a very, very long life to live right could be a week could be a month it could be a year okay so regardless if you open close tabs depending on how you close it doesn't matter if those sessions are still validated or valid it's going to be the same thing the same result if if someone steals your laptop and they're able to break into your laptop into your account and log in and get access to your desktop get access to your browser all they have to do is just open up a tab and go to twitter and voila they're in your twitter account it doesn't necessarily matter. Now, that's assuming that you are using, you're the only person using your device. 
if you're using a public computer, for example, at a library, or you're sharing a computer with a bunch of people, perhaps employees, I would wager that it would make sense for you to close everything, plus log out of your accounts prior, uh, just to make sure that in the event an employee is able to leverage their access and get access to your account and your desktop um, and your browser, that they just can't log into your services. So I hope that answer gives you some direction and your methodology should probably be modified moving forward, depending on your scenario. Adam writes in, hi, Chris and Hector. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Uh, I listened to Chris's interview with Lex Friedman and have been a devoted listener nice. ever since. Well, thank you, Adam. Uh, every week, I look forward to listening to the latest episode while I sit in L.A. traffic on my way to work. Oh, sorry, you have to sit oh, in that, Adam. Uh, L.A. is the worst. Well, he um, puts a smiley face after that, so, you know, yeah. he's... You know he's he's a uh, <laughs> he's a bit off with the traffic. So. Yeah, well, I don't think New York's not much better on the traffic. So. Ugh, we're gonna be started. So Adam goes on and says, many of the stories you cover involve data breaches and personal security. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the risks surrounding hardware hacks in in industry security. I work in robotics um, and autonomous systems, and I see more and more companies turning to robotic solutions to boost their productivity. Also, we're seeing more robots quote, in the wild, uh, like delivery robots and robots that help uh, around your house or in a store or hospital. Hacking a robot on site of a small on a business seems like a way to gain physical access to a site without having to physically do the breaking and entering. Is robot hacking common? And is it something businesses and individuals shouldn't worry about uh, as we deploy more robots to assist us? Do robot manufacturers have security standards that they need to adhere to uh, before deploying their systems? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the security issues for robots and autonomous and autonomous systems more generally. I got to be honest. I think if we played a drinking game for the number of times robot applies in that question, <laughs> we would both we'd sound like me reading it. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Robot hacking, Hector. Yes. Tell yes. me what you know. Okay. So I did a pen test against a robot uh, several months ago. Can't mention the, 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 you know, obviously the place or where I went to. Um, but to answer the question about security standards, the robot fell under that. Yes, there were security standards that that manufacturer had to follow specifically because, because and I'm being very general here, because that robot was within healthcare, right? And because of that, because of that, they fell under several different FDA requirements. All right. Now, you know, depending on what exactly you're doing in healthcare, those requirements may change, but for the most part, they're pretty much the same. Uh, do you have a security policy? Are you doing auditing, right? Um, do you have some sort of SBOM? Do you have X, Y, and Z, right? It's a whole bunch of different things that you have to follow in order to be compliant enough to even be acknowledged enough to potentially get FDA approval. It's a whole process. It's a multi-year and multi-million dollar process in order for you to even get into that industry with some sort of robot. The company that I work with, big kudos to them. I wish them a lot of success. I know they'll make it. So that answers your question partly. Now, if it's a non-healthcare robot, then I'm pretty sure, and feel free to correct me, Chris. I know you, you work a lot in, in uh, other parts of the industries. You might see other policies that may apply to robots in the industries. Uh, but as far as I know, there's no like global general robots security standards. Okay. No, no. There's you know there's regulated industry. If if a robot was in that regulated it, industry, exactly. But I don't. Yeah. There's nothing specific to robots in a non-regulated space. 
that I'm aware of. It, same here, right? And, I, and I've done some research on this because I was curious. Once I saw, like, those Amazon robots delivering packages or whatever it was, food. I remember, I remember there was a video I saw of a robot traveling and, uh, you know, people were taking pictures of it. And then some guys, like, tipped it over and just opened the box and stole whatever was inside, right? Oh, my college that I went to that actually, I, you know, I they have robots that deliver things to dorm rooms, delivers books wow. from the library, wow. delivers different things. It just drives around by itself and delivers to the rooms. It's crazy. Like it drives from dorm to dorm. Like it's it's out on like sidewalks. Dude, that's very cool. Yeah, I think it's cool. So so let's look at it from now we're going beyond security standards. I think it really depends on which industry that robot is going to work in and whether or not it's regulated. Um, and I already give you guys one example, right? Self-driving would be another one, right? Now you're dealing with a whole bunch of other things, a whole bunch of other um, regulations and, and practices that you have to follow. Um, this is why we were not really seeing self-driving cars as as much as you would think in 2023, moving into 2024, because before car manufacturers could just drop a self-driving car in the middle of, of, of a city, they have to follow all sorts of regulations, including DMV, including you know whatever else. Um, assuming it's not a self-driving car, let's say it's a self-flying drone. Um, now you have to deal with the FAA and, and other industries, right? So it's uh, agencies. So yes, it depends on the industry, my friend, and it depends on circumstances. Now, if I were a bad guy and I saw a little Amazon delivery robot dropping off someone's package, as the bad guy, I would do exactly what those other guys did, just tip it over and, and see what's inside. Or if you are a bad guy with an interest in leveraging that access, then your next thing would be, well, can I take the CPU or rather, can I take the motherboard with memory and disks and whatever else? Can I take it back and dump the, dump the firmware, see what the system is, see what it's running, see what kind of software is running? Can I find a vulnerability in the software? Can I connect back into the AWS network or Amazon network? And can I leverage that any further? Right? So there will be security implications of just dropping these devices everywhere. And, and at the very least, there may be some uh, um, information leakage. At the very least, that current customer is expecting a package. That robot is pre-programmed to go to that delivery uh, destination. So at the very least, some stranger is going to have your address if they're able to steal the robot and reverse engineer it. That's just my two cents on it, if I were to look at it as a bad, as a bad guy. That is fantastic. So our next email, Hector, is from an anonymous proton mailer. Um, the hero, nice. he or she, I'm not really sure, uh, mm -hmm. is wrote, Hey, Hector and Chris, you guys have been getting some recent questions about career device, so I've got another one for you, especially for Hector. You are constantly hearing stories about teenage, quote, script kitties getting caught after hacking into dozens of different places. Well, in my mid to late teens, I was one of those kids. So former hacker or former script kitty. Uh, I never hacked things for monetary gain, never sold stolen data. I just did it for the thrill of it. And like a lot of these other kids. Well, my quote-unquote fun came to an end when I was 18 and I got caught hacking and stealing the data from a county government website. Uh, a bunch of sensitive data. Again, I would never sell this data or anything, just keep it for myself. Long story short, after a few months of legal back and forth, I was charged and sentenced to a low-level felony and sentenced to two and a half years of probation. I'm 21 now with a probation about to end. I know a lot of ex-black hat hackers uh, turned to white hats 
obviously by listening to Hacker in the Fed, I'm still very interested in cybersecurity. As an anonymous email with no reason to lie, I can say that I genuinely want to join the ethical side of hacking, specifically physical pen testing. Of course, it's hard for someone like me to get a job. No one wants to hire someone with a hacking felony and government clearances are pretty much a no-go. I could have a chance to expunge in seven years, but was wondering if you guys had any advice for me other than just wait seven plus years. Thanks a ton. Love your show and looking forward to a response. So what do you have for anonymous proton mailer? Yeah, well, this this question and this email is very personal to me because I've been in this position, anonymous. And the one thing I'll tell you is that, no, you do not have to wait those seven years, right? Yes, it will be difficult in the beginning um, trying to get a job and, and saying, yeah, you know, I'm a felon, a former bad guy, and uh, I want to work for your business. Yes, you're going to have that initial scrutiny. Do you start it right at the beginning? When you, when you approach a company, should this guy be telling them about his past to start off with? And, and, and you know, and, no, and no, you hold, you hold that information back? No, I mean, it'll come out eventually, right? As you're going through the interview process, right? And especially if they do a background check, yeah, you're going to have to discuss that. Well, do but you go really, right up front and say, I don't want to waste your time and my time. If we can get past this, it's great. I'd like to continue. Uh, but if not, like, like, do you suggest throwing it out there or do you suggest putting out your skill sets and then backing your way into this? Well, that's exactly where I'm going, right? Okay. I mean, what really spoke for me was the fact that I had a certain set of skills. Not to, not to quote uh, the movie Taken, um, <laughs> but, you know, I knew that I was good at certain things, right? I'm not a painter. I'm not an artist. I can't, I can't rebuild your motor without, you know, outside help for sure. Well, but you're sort of an I'm... artist with SQL injection. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> uh, well, you can just see tools. it. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it's a wild time. Um, but no, no, but, but in all reality here, you know, the one thing that you want to do is put emphasis on your skill set. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can do for you. Here's how I'm able to communicate and communicate with clients. Here's what I would like to do. Here's what I'm interested in. And as you kind of move forward to the conversation, you know, you go into more details of your background. The truth of the matter is, is a lot of what former black cats have to do and have had to do in order to get back into the industry or uh, get into the business uh, or into, you know, get a job is, is to prove themselves. In many ways, you have to prove that, you, that they could trust you, right? Hiring requires a lot of trust and requires the organization going to trust you to be part of their organization. If they're not able to trust you, then that's going to be problematic. So I have some ideas for you, okay? The one thing you want to do is get your skills up. I don't know where you stand. I don't know what kind of uh, security knowledge you have or what kind of skill set you have, rather. Um, but, you know, it seems like you want to get into physical pen testing. It seems like that's kind of the direction you're interested in. Cool. So let's focus on that. Start tinkering with hardware products. Start doing research projects. Open up a blog. Do a talk at DEF CON. Um, you know, start making content. The point is you want to create yourself your own portfolio. And you want to highlight what it is that you can do. And I promise you, in a matter of a year, you're going to have a really good support. You're going to have a great network, assuming that you move forward with networking. And you have a great understanding of the security issues that you want to target and work with. And be able to explain it. Because I'm going to tell all of you right now, and I may have mentioned this before, if you want to be a pen tester, that's fine. If you want to learn how to hack things and hack things, that's great. But if you're not able to communicate those things, those findings back to your customer, 
then your customer is not going to come back to you, right? They're not paying you to break into their system. They're paying you to understand how their system has gaps or what kind of gaps exist. And they're paying you to help them understand how to deal with those gaps and how those gaps could be leveraged, right? And there's a whole bunch of other things in places there as well, like validating their security tools and, and things like that. So no, you don't have to wait seven years. You can start today. Start building a portfolio. You know, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. You can pretend like you're someone else, whatever. I'll gladly answer whatever questions you have. Um, but I think you'll do great, and you don't have to wait those seven years, man. Um, you know, it's, it's time to move forward now. So that's where I'll leave it at. What about you, Chris? What do you think? No, I think that's excellent advice. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you are, you know, by far the leading expert on this one. I mean, you've changed your life around. You, you put your story out there. Um, so I, I could never add to, to, to your advice on this one. Yeah, but 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 these are things I, I want to highlight you though, right? I want to highlight the fact that you told me a lot of these things as well. I mean, there was a point. You remember when I came out of prison? I was broke. You remember that? I was dead in the water. You know, even when you guys, even after you and, and your team arrested me, you saw I, I was trying to apply for jobs, right? Um, you guys saw that I was trying, and I started in the beginning. At the very least, I started hitting a wall, and it was very difficult for me. And it was very emotional for me. Um, but, you know, getting advice from you and getting advice from other great people, they told me, no, just keep moving forward and highlight yourself. You know, prove to these potential clients that you are trustworthy and they're going to rock with you because the one thing they would want, and this goes back to the anonymous proton mail uh, person here. The one thing a lot of companies want to know is, you know, are we as bad as we think we are and can you validate where we stand? And so your, 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 your personal and former black hat perspective is extremely valuable to them. So, again, I just want to just point out a big shout out to you, Chris, for, for all your help, but also to this gentleman here or lady. Um, you know, you're not stuck. I assure you of that. Don't make light of what you did, you know, because people on the other side, like people like me in law enforcement, you know, we don't understand, you know, that it's fun to break into a government site and take information. You know, the, when you did it, you know, people didn't realize that, you know, your, your actions, you know, were one thing you, that you had no intention of selling the data. You know, it felt intrusive. If I was a part of my information was part of that government website, it would feel intrusive. Um, so, you know, general yeah. general remorse and uh, genuine remorse, not general remorse, genuine remorse. <laughs> Uh, you know, really goes a long way. And then, you, yeah. you know, it sounds like it. it sounds like you have that. So make mm -hmm. sure that comes across in the interviews. You know, Hector, I think you do a great job of that. I think, you you know, you, you, you try not to, you know, play up that, you know, I did this. I have to live with what the consequences of my actions. Sure. Um, but, you know, let me tell my story so someone else doesn't make the same mistake and also, um, you know, can be helpful to others. Yeah, no, absolutely. You don't, you don't want to overthink things, right? And you also don't want to glorify things. I, I do a speech with Chris all the time, and I'm sure he's, he gets sick of hearing me say the same thing, but the reality is I want to make sure that when I'm talking about a, a past event, I let the audience know, hey, by the way, I'm not here to glorify any of this. I'm just trying to share a message, or rather, I'm trying to share some lessons, lessons that you could all apply, you know? It's interesting, and I always love when I hear from like a former black cat, and you know they're like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to go in straight and narrow. I have a family, I want to take care of them." And what's my response always, Chris? I'm sure you heard me say this. Right now is a perfect opportunity. You have a long-term career path right in front of you. There should be nothing holding you back. And so what if a client tells you, "I'm sorry, I can't work with you." I've had that happen to me, and you know what? I walked away, you know, in many ways feeling great because their reason is. 
hey Hector, we can't hire you because you know you lack skills. Or hey Hector, we don't like you know, we're not hiring you because we don't like you, right? It's no Hector, unfortunately we can't hire you because our security department is under the legal department, and the legal department had they're very um, they're very concerned about liability. So we would love to work with you again in the future on something else, but right now on this engagement, we can't because uh, of potential liability concerns. I would prefer that. That's a better answer to me than for them to say, well, you're kind of too early, heck. You know, you got to develop your red teaming skills or, hey, you need to read more books on, I don't know, something, right? So, yeah, if you get that answer, great. And if they come back and tell you, well, you know, we could use you, but, you know, you, you lack a certain skill set, okay, boom, thank you for that. Now you go back and you hustle, you start learning what that skill set is, assuming you want to continue on that path. So, Hector, a question from a former hacker. Now we move on to a question from a current hacker. All right. Love these. Yeah. Tao Soon from uh, Vietnam. He wrote, Dear Hacker in the Fed, did Hector ever hack a company as large as X? I'll say X. Uh, uh, the email did come from this company that he sent in and send a pointless, and send a pointless email to you all. Um, uh, y'all again. Y'all's making a big comeback. <laughs> to make a comeback. So, yeah. Uh, can you catch me? He, he, he. Uh, keep up the good work on the podcast while cybercrime continues to thrive. Love listening. So this is a hacker who loves the show, who hacked into a company and used that company to send us an email. Um, he also sent another question, uh, love listening, which continues on. So any good hacker to prove identity uses a phrase um, in both emails, and he used love listening in both of them. Um, my question is, what would you recommend for a cyber criminal such as myself who participates in ransomware and other cyber crime to change their life and work in the industry? Any suggestion for all the criminals who want to go down the straight and, uh, straight and narrow? So, Hector, how do you talk someone, you know, we, we talked to, you know, Anonymous before about how, you know, to move past, uh, you know, things he did in the past. How now do, would you talk to someone to tell them that cybercrime just isn't worth it um, and to get out of that lifestyle? Well, that, that's a tough one, right? And it all depends. So a big shout out to our listeners from Vietnam. I have a lot of friends from Vietnam, um, especially from my old neighborhood, Low East Side. Love the Vietnamese people. Now, with that being said, in regards to the first email, I mean, I guess that was a flex. It's very similar to how we used to flex back in the 1990s and, and defacing a website. Hey, I was here, LOL, right? Uh, it's fun now, but it, trust me, it's 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 akin to doing like graffiti in the street. Like, it's, it's not that serious, my friend. And, uh, you know, I would rather you change your life than you get caught and have to deal with the consequences of, of, of you know, sending a stupid email. Like, it's not that serious. I would rather you you know, listen to my message right now and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take care of my business and start a career and be able to support my family and do great things and have a wonderful life. I would be happier with that. So I want to focus on your second question here. So what, what would you recommend for a cyber criminal such as myself who participates in so-and-so uh, to change the life of work in the industry? Well, it depends, right? Um, what's important to you, okay? If you want to go in a straight and narrow and you want to have a career, that you need to really focus on your career path and what it is that you want to do. For example, if you want to be a pen tester and you want to help organizations identify gaps in the security posture um, or their attack surface, then you know instead of targeting organizations now and, and engaging in criminal activity, you can you can take that same time to learn how to you know properly build a methodology um, to be able to communicate how to to you know one 
uh, you know, target of vulnerability and how to kind of remediate that vulnerability, but also how to communicate that vulnerability to your clients. You know, and there's a lot of things you could do to really enhance your skill set. I'm sure you're, you're talented and I'm sure you're good and you have a good understanding of cybersecurity concepts. Okay, let's turn that into something. So one of the first steps you should do is if you have not worked officially in the cybersecurity industry, maybe it's time to start. But before you start, you need to drop what it is you're doing right now. Because the one thing you don't want to do is blend that with your career path. Because you're going to get hit harder if you're working as a professional and you're caught doing you know shady things in the background. Um, and you're really going to really plateau and you're really going to ruin your chances for the future, right? For me, when I was in your position, my concerns was my family. I'm very family-oriented. I have a very small family and they mean the world to me. And so, and so to see my family struggle and to see them hungry or to see them homeless, I would rather, you know, I would rather grind and hustle and work hard um, before that happens. And so my motivation was, okay, I need to get this career going and I need to be able to make money to support my family and make sure that they're happy. I'm not sure if that's what you have in your life, but if you do have that in your life, that's your motivation. So what are you going to do? You're taking your current skill sets and you're going to polish them. Okay? So if you're good at web application security, this is just an example. You're good at web application security. You should be able to answer without hesitation any of the top 10 OWASP uh, vulnerability vectors. Okay? And have an understanding of what each one is and how to deal with them. Okay? Now, moving forward, you should be able to um, you know, engage an application, identify vulnerabilities, do a write-up of what those vulnerabilities are, put together at the very least some sort of remediation steps or strategy, and then print all that out or print, print that out and read it out loud. And if you could read what you wrote in a way that makes sense to you, hopefully it would be able to make sense to your clients. And guess what, brother? Right now you have a business. You can either go work for somebody or you can start your own security shop there in Vietnam and you can start going out there and promoting your business and going to security conferences and networking with people on LinkedIn and now you have potential clients, right? So you're in a really good position and I would I would hope that you, know, you listen to what I'm saying and deviate from that current lifestyle because I promise you, you're going to have a long, beautiful life ahead of you. But here's a consequence. If you continue in the current path that you are in, eventually someone somewhere is going to find you. And depending on how that happens or where it happens or who finds you, you know, it could have devastating circumstances or consequences. Okay? So just be careful. And remember, every time you rob from somebody or you do a ransomware or you do this, you do that, you're hurting someone else. And that's something you don't want to do. Now, if you're living life and you don't give a fuck, then it is what it is. Either way, I give you, I give you, uh, you know, my blessings, and I wish you best of luck. And feel free to ask more questions. I'll, I'll be glad to, uh, you know, to direct you on on the good path. And that's that. And that's my rant. That's my rant for tonight, Chris. <laughs> that was good. I, I liked it. So Dale writes in Hector and Chris. I agree with Chris, and that uh, people, I'll tell you right now, the easiest oh. way to get your question answered on Hacker and the Fed is to start <laughs> off with I agree with Chris. Um, that's right. <laughs> I agree with Chris that a free market solution is likely the best option here. However, sometimes it's hard to find the truth amongst all the marketing. So here's an idea. Why not allow this to factor into the cyber trust mark? For me, knowing a company has had several security issues in the past would influence a purchasing decision. 
uh, to me, applying a framework isn't the same as having good security. And this would allow consumers to gauge a company's security performance. Uh, I, w I hope you both have a great week. We did. Uh, and can't wait to hear the next show. Well, Dale, you're on the next show. So glad you're listening. Yeah, I agree with you, Dale. Um, so the people remember what a cyber trust mark is, is sort of like, a, you know, FDA approved beef or whatever you want to do it, but they're going to do it for, uh, for cyber, uh, for devices, you know, uh, whether it passes certain security protocols and all that. I'm just afraid of that system being perverted. Um, that system, you know, being influenced by who can buy their way in, who can buy certain things. Um, uh, you know, I, I just don't, you know, completely trust that, but it's a good start. And I agree with you, Dale, that, you know, that, that maybe, maybe we give it a try. I shouldn't put it down before we, uh, we get into it and give it a, give it a shot. So let's launch it and see what happens. But yeah, uh, whether their po uh, company's posture historically has been security, um, whether they're trending into security lawyers, like, you know, maybe 10 years ago, they didn't do security, but now they said, well, shit, we really need to add security to our devices. You know, that would all be interesting information when you're out that, you know, standing at Best Buy and about to buy a router. I, I agree. Uh, yeah, I would like to see, I mean, even when we had the discussion last time, right, Chris, um, you know, one of the things that I said was I would love to see something, anything. And if there's some sort of mark that tells me, hey, this company, you know, is following some sort of methodology or they have, you know, agreed to, to uh, you know, to disclose security issues, anything, right? Anything that I could just go back to the website or go back to the link and say, okay, cool. So this is what they're doing. Um, that would help me as an individual, and I'm sure of, um, you know, for uh, Dale as well, it'll help with decision making. But right now, it's like there's there's nothing. And so you, you don't know whether the device you're buying is from a vendor that historically has had a ton of security issues and they don't take security serious. But yeah, big shout out to Dale for this. And, and yes, folks, if you want to make Chris happy, just let him know you agree <laughs> with him and everything will be all right. Uh, you've <laughs> known me for too long, Hector. So our last question, Hector, uh, asked to be not to use their name. They provide the name and email, and uh, I'll never tell. So um, uh, I, I changed out some things that uh, they said that could help identify them to, to kind of do it. So I am a military chaplain uh, working in one of the branches of the military and love your podcast. Uh, although most of what you say goes over my head, uh, but I, I am learning. So I disagree. I bet you, I bet you absorb more than you think. Um, really appreciate your podcast and the banter. Well, that's good because we had a lot this week. So uh, my question deals more with uh, under our understandings of what's going on. So, um, Chris, what is your concept of justice pre-FBI? Uh, and how did the FBI influence your, your views on justice? And how do you define justice now? So, you know, justice is that, our, that, that everyone's applied equally. Everyone has a, a fair shot at everything. Um, that laws and rules are applied equally is it was sort of my mindset um, go through this whole thing and I don't think it really changed in the FBI or post that everything's fairly I know a lot of things you know lot of, very political we could go down the path here that that things aren't equally applied uh, across everything these days um, but really kind of what changed and got you got me thinking on this reading this question uh, person not one use their name um, was more of kind of the what the prison system and how my feelings on that has changed so going from working in local law enforcement to working in the fbi to post fbi to being friends with hector 
So really, the U.S. prison system, there's four things. It's um, retribution, incapacitation, deterrence, and rehabilitation. I didn't really believe in the rehabilitation part. I believed when I was like a local cop that you would go and arrest someone and put them in jail so they were being punished for what they did. Um, and then that jail really didn't change them. Um, so then I got into the FBI where I was a part of a few more arrests. Um, but then I arrested Hector. And then Hector sat next to me for eight, nine months. And I got to know, well, let me re go back. And I've said this before. I arrested Sabu. And then Hector got to sit next to me. Uh, I saw Sabu online, but then Hector was physically with me. Hector's presence around me put a face on criminals for me um, and kind of changed the way I saw the system. Um, so the whole system was different to me now because I had a real person that I spent time with that I grew to love as a person in that time and didn't just see him as a criminal anymore. Um, so it, it sort of, you know, took that anonymity of criminal behavior to, you know, you know, you arrest someone, you spend a few hours with them, you put them in jail, you don't really see them much anymore. Um, that was gone with Hector. So my interactions with Hector forever changed my life in that criminals weren't just things you did. It wasn't just your job to put something in jail because they did a bad thing and now they have to pay a price for it. I did start believing in the whole rehabilitation um, that you could change as a person. Like you didn't have to, all, once a criminal, always a criminal, was no longer part of my mindset. So my pre-FBI, FBI, post-FBI, that's really the part of my philosophies that, that, that kind of changed. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I wanna thank Hector for that. I think I've thanked you before for it, but I wanna thank you again for allowing me as a person to grow. And, and I think I think I'm a better person because of arresting you. Yeah, I'm honored when I hear that. that. That means a lot to me. You know, I for a long time, for a long time, you know, I I probably felt the same as you, but in the opposite, right? Because I grew up in a, in, a, in a space where from the jump from you know, me as a kid, what I saw was crime constantly happening. I saw a ton of crime. And I, I was involved in all sorts of crime prior to getting into computers. And it was like, hey, we're just surviving. It's okay. It's part of the process. And if we get caught, we get caught. If we don't get caught, then great. Let's just continue moving forward. It's 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 interesting, you know, this question. And, and again, uh, Chris, uh, I feel the same with you, man. I learned so much off you, so thank you for that as well. But I, I think going back to this question here, my concept of justice when I read, um, you know, the Hacker's Manifesto, and, and I kind of want to read uh, the person's question here. Uh, their question was, what was your concept of justice when you read the Hacker's Manifesto, and how did it develop over time in Anonymous, and how you define justice now? All great questions. So pretty much what I just said a moment ago, right? When I was reading the Hacker's Manifesto as a kid, I just had come out of a life-altering experience. Uh, the war on drugs separated me from my family, and um, some of them were given life in prison. And so what I had learned up to, uh, up to that point was that, hey, sometimes we need to do what we need to do to survive, and that's okay. That's part of life. 
okay? Um, when I read the Hacker's Manifesto, though, I didn't, I didn't really associate, like, street crime to it. And I wasn't looking at, you know, crime in general when I read it. You know, what, I, what, what was important to me from that write-up, from big shout-out to the mentor, um, is that it told me that I was accepted. It told me that I wasn't necessarily a piece of shit and that I could be a hacker if I wanted to. And it didn't matter the, the color of my skin. I could, I could be that. Then, um, of course, the ending, you know, my crime is that of curiosity. My crime is that of outsmarting you, something you will never forgive me for. And, you know, I went through a, a time, I went through, I would say, a, a time in my life where, you know, I felt, I felt inadequate, right? I felt not, inadequate in the sense that I, I, maybe I, I felt stupid. And I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And I felt like an outsider. So when I read this, this, this write-up, I read this, this small essay, you know, I, I felt welcomed. And so justice wasn't really, re really necessarily relevant to me specific to this point in my life and the question. Um, it was still kind of, hey, we got to do what we got to do to survive. Now, when by the time I got to Anonymous, I was already, you know, a young man. And um, I was a firm believer of, of, of hacktivism. Okay. And the way I looked at it was, well, in the eyes of my peers, and, then, and, and what I feel inside, I'm doing the right thing by compromising and targeting governments and agencies and organizations that seemingly are doing wrong. And I should have known better because I was a young man, but I had a good understanding of right and wrong. And so justice for me was, well, you know, this certain government is bad, so it's okay for me to break into the systems. That's fine. Right. How do I define it now? Well, it's taken me a long time to get here. It's taken a lifetime of lessons and consequences and experiences to reach a point where I understand that people make mistakes. I understand that people are misguided. And I understand that sometimes people just fuck up. And when that happens, you know, there has to be, and of course, I would say it depends on what, what the fuck up was. There's consequences to it especially if laws are broken. But as you guys can imagine, I'm someone that turned over a new leaf, as it were. I'm someone that have you know, spent a lot of time giving back to the community, doing classes for free, teaching folks, mentoring folks. I believe in rehab, and I believe that people deserve or can earn, not necessarily deserve, but I think people can earn second chances. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of where I land, all right? Um, Hacking cases, I mean, look, you know, for a long time, when we saw a hacker go to jail for, like, defacing a website and they got, like, two to ten or whatever it was, right, uh, two, to, you know, two years minimum, ten years maximum in prison, um, a lot of us argued that, wait, that, that's, that might be a bit too much because that, that incident is akin to, like, doing some graffiti on someone's wall, a business wall, right? But now as, as engagements and actors or bad actors have change the, the methodology to a point where now they're involved in ransomware. Yeah, now you're purposely doing damage to people's files and systems. Now, now you're going beyond the scope of what hacking, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, when I learned about it, was really about. It was about curiosity. It was about knowledge. It was about learning. It wasn't necessarily about, hey, how much money can we steal? Now, I'm sure you've heard me recently, 
when we talk about hospitals getting hit by ransomware attacks, and you see that I'm much more aggressive in my response because I think that they're, you know, listen, if you're going to attack, you know, a, a government for their action or inaction um, or injustices against people, um, you know, I'm not for it anymore, but I can understand why you're doing it. I could get it, right? I could put myself in your shoes. But if you're attacking a hospital, I can't, right? I, I just I just can't. I can't put myself in your shoes because no matter, no matter how much you're fucking hungry and starving, you don't need to potentially kill somebody or disrupt, you know, health services to get a couple of dollars to feed yourself. You can literally go outside and do Uber Eats and make yourself, you know, some wages and buy yourself food. It's not that serious. So, yeah, my, my, um, the way, the way I look at justice now is, is way different than when I started. And, um, but I'm also much more open-minded and accepting. And I would, you know, even going back to this episode, we had a question here from someone that's a former black hat. What am I telling that person, right? You have opportunities. You could do great. Your life is not on standstill. You don't have to stay stuck or stagnated. You could move and make a change that's going to change your life. And not only yours, but those around you. And for the other email we received from a current black hat, what am I telling that person? You could do the same exact thing. You don't have to be the bad guy. At the end of the day, it really depends on you and what it is you want to do with your life and how you want to be a provider in your family. That was fantastic, Hector. I really was. Great questions this, guy, this week, guys. Again, keep hitting us up. Uh, we love your questions. Questions at HackerInTheFed.com. Also, go to uh, HackerInTheFed.com to get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise. We've got hoodies and T-shirts and custom orders. A lot of international orders this week, Hector. Um, moving a lot of it, uh, merchandise. So uh, really appreciate you guys supporting the show. Um, it really goes a long ways. Um, you know, Hector and I hope to keep the show up and running and keep the lights on You know, well into 2024. And so, again, hit up that merchandise sales at HackerInTheFed.com. That'd be great. We appreciate it. New episode every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. A thick one with three C's this week, Hector. Ooh-wee! <laughs> thick one. So great talking to you. Glad you made it home safely. Uh, look forward to talking to you throughout the week. Uh, I appreciate everything, friend. Yeah, it's been a pleasure always. Cheers. Cheers, friend. <laughs>